Join Capital Group CEO Mike Gitlin for a new edition of the Capital Ideas Podcast. In unscripted conversations with investment professionals, you'll hear real stories about successes and lessons learned, informed by decades of investment experience. It's your look inside one of the world's largest asset managers. New episodes are available monthly. Subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Invest 30 minutes in an episode today. Published by American Funds Distributors, Inc. Hello, this is Everything Else, the FT Culture Podcast. I'm Al, food and drink editor. And I'm Grizz, commissioning editor on the Arts Desk. This is our season finale, and we have something a bit different for you. It's a personal essay by the American writer Alexander Chi from his new collection, How to Write an Autobiographical Novel. Okay, so this is our final episode of 2018. That's right. Any highlights from the series? Many highlights, yes. Any favourite moments? Well, what I've noticed looking back over the season is like, what a broad church everything else is. Um, <laughs> it's an lived extremely up, broad church. Yeah, we've lived up to the title. We've you know, started off with the World Cup. We've had Simon Sharma talking about Trump and satire. We've talked about the banking crisis with the Lehman Trilogy, loneliness. We've had a guilty feminist. We've had, I think, the greatest novelist of our time at the moment, Sally Rooney. We've had John Cooper Clark. Phil Wang, I think it's been a plethora of <laughs> of things. And most importantly, of course, there's been love in the air. I fell in love with Matthew McFadden and Stephen Mangan. Mm-hmm. Um, you were already in love with Stephen Mangan, although you refused to interview him. And you got married. That's right. Yeah. You know, love is a theme. Love and... Well, we talked about loneliness, the actually. The love podcast. <laughs> the love podcast. Yeah, I mean, a, a low light for me, I think, is Stephen Mangan suggesting that maybe I don't exist that yeah, was that's that was tough to listen to yeah but you know we move on okay so who was your favorite guest to interview as you know I loved Sally Rooney and Sally Rooney as I think I mentioned to you is in a good way meeting her was a bit like meeting a character from one of her books both of which I loved Marianne from Normal People yeah, I mean, she she isn't Marianne, but I'm there are elements. That she is, but I'm probably wrong. I think you're wrong. I think <laughs> I think she's I think she's maybe more Connell than Marianne, but she was really fun and spiky and in the right way and and kind of clever and cool. I liked her a lot. Who was your favourite? I think well, he wasn't the easiest person to interview, um, but I I think my favourite was John Cooper Clark, who sort of. Rendered me sort of basically <laughs> obsolete as a, um, well, even more obsolete than normal uh, as an interviewer by not, not not just not replying, but not actually reacting to my questions. Well, yeah, and, you know, making eye contact with somebody who's wearing two pairs of, well, a pair of sunglasses and a pair of glasses. Yeah, that's quite is, a thing. It's tricky. <laughs> yeah, no, that, is a, that is a thing. Okay, so let's move on to Alexander Chi, the author of the essay that we're about to hear. Yeah, so Korean-American writer Alexander Chi is someone who I've discovered this year. His novel Edinburgh was actually published back in 2001, but has only been published in this country this year. So I don't think he's really known to people in the UK in the way that he is a kind of literary figure in the US. And How to Write an Autobiographical Novel was actually published 
in the US this year and here this year. So I think publishers here have suddenly realised actually there is a demand for his work. And We've woken up to Alexander Chi. Yeah, so I picked it up because, as you know, and anyone who listened to last week's episode, I'm interested in autofiction and the idea of blending memoir and fiction. And so the title, How to Write an Autobiographical Novel, kind of piqued my interest. Okay, so I've read this essay, uh, The Rosary, but I haven't read the whole collection. If I do, will I discover how to write an autobiographical novel? Um, I'm afraid not. It's not really a how-to. Although, actually, there are... That's a swizz, then, isn't it? There are chapters about writing, particularly kind of advice given to him when he was studying writing, and now he's a teacher. And it's also partly about the writer's life, but actually it's more of a memoir. Um, These are personal essays, and they kind of broadly chart the course of his life from kind of adolescence to now the final one is about Trump. So... You don't really pick up tips, I wouldn't say, as kind of how to write a good sentence. It's not one of those kind of books at all, but it actually sort of quite cleverly lifts the veil a little bit on the craft of writing. It's not precious or hiding things. And how personally revealing is he? Very, yeah. I mean, it's a lot about his life as a gay man in the, at the time of the AIDS crisis in San Francisco as an activist. This is kind of early 90s he was there. I'm interested to know what you thought of this story, though, because I don't think it's typical of the collection as a whole in that I think it's actually less autobiographical, really. I mean, without giving any spoilers, it's about a bloke who makes a beautiful garden, a a rose garden. It's called The Rosary. I don't know if Alexander Chi is a gardener, but I mean, it definitely rings true. It's a sort of beautiful, meditative, lyrical tale of of a gardening obsession, really, but with sort of broader and deeper aspects to it. Well, I think it's interesting as well, the way he kind of weaves in the history of, and the sort of mythology of roses, so the connection between the Catholic rosary, like rosary beads, and roses and the Virgin Mary. Yeah, ver- yeah. That's why we have roses at gravesides and yeah, like Yeah, what they represent, and kind of, it sort of sweeps out to the broader picture and then comes into this garden that he's cultivating, a small rose garden in a patch of Brooklyn. Yeah, I can identify as well the sort of obsession that the narrator has with his garden. I made a garden at at my home, and I unexpectedly found myself really, really obsessed and thinking that I love my wife and I love Rufus, but then after that, probably the garden (laughs) comes third. Well, I think it's interesting, though, because that's what comes out in this story. It's a sense of tending to one's garden as a kind of meditative you know self-care is a bit of a buzzword at the moment it's kind of attending to one's own yeah and, and soul or something it feels there's something that feels sort of quite deeply um therapeutic yeah and it. morally good this i and i can completely sympathize with him talking to his plants i would sort of think that i was going through a sort of crisis earlier in the year that the garden was a sort of benign philosophical presence which is obviously all total bullshit but um that's what i felt <laughs> no i think that's not bullshit i think that's great okay well should we listen the rosary one in december of 1995 
I am shown an apartment in Brooklyn by a broker who apologizes for it as soon as she opens the door. It's small, she says, looking away, as if the sight of such a small place offends her. We walk into a large studio and kitchen with high ceilings, the wood floor buffed to a high gloss. Beyond that, a sliding glass door shows a small wooden deck that leads to a yard at least as large as the apartment, a mudslick striped by a stone walkway. Wooden, seven-foot-tall picket fences line the sides, and a chain-link fence closes off the back. I don't respond to the broker right away because as I enter the apartment and the sun fills the back window, I see, like an apparition, roses tossing in the air like a parade. Pink, orange, red, white, all lit up by the sun. They appear and then are gone by the time I am fully inside the apartment. As if painted on a curtain, someone drew back. As if an entire garden could be a ghost together, or a premonition, or both. I follow the broker into the yard and back into the apartment while she talks through the apartment's qualities. A short list. The rent is cheap. There's a garden. That's about it. As she does so, the winter mud, the dead grass, the snow, these all seem like lies after the strange vision I've just had. I notice a rubble-strewn yard next door, visible through three missing teeth in the wooden fence. A black-and-white mother cat nurses black-and-white kittens on a board someone left in the sun. The rent is so cheap, I ask why. Too many people moved in and out, raising the rent too high, way above market. And so this lease has a rider attached, giving it a $500 discount, she answers. This seems like a lie. She says nothing else, and the silence is out of a horror film. A silence that tells the audience, I will later discover, that anonymous, unspeakable murders have happened here. As the broker moves me to the front door, I don't want to leave. I feel like I'm already home. I go with her to see a second apartment out of some idea that it will make it less strange when I decide on the first but I'm nervous the whole time that I could lose the first to someone else. The second apartment is a little larger, a little more expensive, on the second floor with four rooms. It feels large and lonely. It's too much room, I tell her, and she raises an eyebrow. Are you sure, she asks me, as I fill out the application for the garden apartment. Yes, I say, impatient to move in and open that ground. Previous to this, I had no talent for gardening that anyone knew about, ever, including me. As a child, I helped my mother garden, but recall very little of it, except for placing pine needles and styrofoam cones around her roses at our home in Maine, insulating them for winter. One winter, I struck a buried rose with a shovel as I built a tunnel through the snow, and I tried to see into the darkness where it slept, afraid I'd killed it. I felt so terrible I was unable to tell her what I'd done and covered the hole with snow. When the spring came, I avoided finding out if it had survived. The single clue that I had any future as a gardener was the long hours I spent in the woods alone, so much so that my neighborhood nickname was Nature Boy. I hunted for the wild orchids called Lady Slippers, sitting and visiting with them in awe of their beauty and their status as rare and endangered. I picked bouquets of black-eyed Susans, lilacs, and Queen Anne's lace to bring home for my mother, whatever I found. But I did not grow anything, which I think is why my sister said, I would have thought you'd kill anything you planted when I told her what I'd planned. In my family, I'm not known for patience. I was the one who yelled, slammed doors, who had confrontations, 
and at the time I was not known for living anywhere more than a year, usually just six months. The only explanation is that it was some gift of the apartments, an otherwise unmystical, unmagical place, an ordinary, even miserable apartment, renovated once in the 80s and then once more before I moved in. It was a blank white box with a small kitchen and a small bathroom, that special lowered rent, that single window that was also a back door, cross-ventilation possible, only when I opened the front door as well. And if not the apartment, then it was a gift to the garden, given when I looked through that window into the space the garden would fill, given before it existed at all. In the first days after I move in, I read books on garden design. They agree that proper gardens are planned to give something to the gardener in each season, even in winter. The spring garden should have early color to revive the eye after the long, colorless winter. In the summer, a circus of full blooms. The fall, a harvest of deeper colors. The winter garden is a shape under the snow, or evergreens and the occasional mahogany red of a rose cane. Many gardeners try to match the colors and ground types and sun exposures. Others compose with the scents in mind as well, in the manner of a perfumer. One book instructs on how to layer bulbs at different depths, so that the crocus is replaced by the tulip, then the lily, iris, canna, and so on, for the last set of lilies to emerge in the fall, a plot like a holster of bulbs. Some are rarefied and planted to be seen at night with white foliage and night-blooming flowers and fragrances that appear only in the evening. Too much of a single variety of plants, the book warns, will make the gardens dull outside the season of the chosen varieties blooming and draw a dense number of pests, as if the pests are drawn to dullness. I begin to make my plan, sketching out the garden, and then my original idea of roses everywhere asserts itself. I discard the plan for a careful garden I do not want. I am planting a rose garden, I tell a friend at what I choose as my local bar, shortly after moving in, testing out saying it. The month is January, dark and cold. Do you have a lot of sunlight? He asks me. Yes, I lie, unsure. The next day I don't have to work, I stay home all day and watch the sun move across the ground. One of the books recommends keeping a garden diary, tracking the sunlight exposures, the rains, the seasons starting and ending. The first sunlight hits my window at 7.30 and touches the ground in the back around 8. The sun leaves the last patch of dirt at 4 p.m. It is January, so the summer promises to have more. All roses, a guidebook says, need a good six hours of sunlight. I have more than enough. The next morning, I turn back to my record of the sunlight and begin another entry. This is how this essay begins on that day. Each day, I wake to the new apartment, still full of sealed packed boxes and a scattering of furniture, a small table that I use as a desk, a chair, and a futon. I take a few of my books out and pile them against the wall, reading some, browsing others. I enjoy the silence. I worked extra jobs like a demon in the previous months to get the money together to move. It's as if the effort has burned off all conversation. I do not get a phone installed immediately, as I do not know what I would say if it rang and I answered. I make calls only when I need to from a payphone. When I am questioned by police who suspect I'm a drug dealer because of this behavior, I get a line installed, but it feels like a concession. 
The center of this block is an H of adjoining yards, variously planted or intended, or, as in the yard on my right, abandoned. By spring, it will be clear, the bare wintry trees in the back will remain like this all year. The black branches pinch the sky like the trees in an Edward Gorey cartoon. They were root poisoned by the landlord, my neighbor tells me when she emerges one day and introduces herself. Their tap roots had endangered the pipes and foundations of the building as they made their slow push through the ground below us. The trees will stay like this the entire time I live here, branches occasionally falling into one or another garden. My yard is full of the fallen limbs of the poisoned trees. My neighbor is a young woman, roughly my age, living off of SSDI due to AIDS, she tells me. I like her right away. She is new also, and almost always at home. She has plans for a lawn and vegetable garden, keeps a compost pile in the back corner of her yard, but she worries about the poison in the ground used to kill the trees. I'm testing the soil, she says. You should too. A beehive is back there also, wild, but as she points out, useful. The bees will pollinate our gardens. She will not remove it. This strikes me as both wise and foolish. The only living tree remaining is a silvery magnolia, still dormant and inexplicably alive amid its dead cousins. The yard to my right is all trash bags of dead plants, an old bicycle, and a smashed fence, and home to those feral yard cats, the mother cat and her new brood. Three yards, when viewed together, my neighbors, mine, and the abandoned one, are like a declension, variations on the theme of habitation. My neighbor's yard is the neat one, mine half-spoiled, the last a ruin. What appear to be metal ladders ascend from the yards, several stories high, notched with pulleys to hold laundry lines, strung over the yards with panties and sheets and towels hung to dry. Occasionally a sock or a panty falls into my garden. No one ever comes to ask for them, and I do not know whose these are. Inevitably, I throw whatever the stray item is away. The only other neighbor I see for the first few months is an older woman, opposite me, her hair combed in brassy hat. She occasionally appears and leaves large metal bowls of cat food for the yard cats, who tumble nightly through my garden in yowling fights. I have a dream of a garden, my first ever, and in the dream there are grass leaves as thick as sword blades, and flowers, indistinguishable by type, of the deepest red and blue and pink. I walk through the garden, and that is the entire dream. 2. In the introduction to the British horticulturist Ellen Wilmot's The Genus Rosa, a brief story. The Persian poet Omar Khayyam, who flourished in the 11th century, has much to say about roses. A hip from a rose planted on his grave at Nashapur was brought home by Mr. Simpson, the artist of the Illustrated London News. It was given to me by the late Bernard Quaritch and reared at Kew. It proved to be Rosa Damascena and a shoot from the Kew plant has now been planted on the tomb of his first English translator, Edward Fitzgerald. A rose travels from Omar Khayyam's grave to Wilmot to the tomb of his late translator. Wilmot declines to say if she is the source of this planting, but her knowledge of it is such that I can only imagine her digging the hole herself, smiling to think of the same bloom, watching over both men's graves. Wilmot's two-volume Genus Rosa is one of the grander dames of rose culture published in between 1910 and 1914. Wilmot walks the reader through the various mentions of roses in classical literature in the Bible, always calling it The Rose with a capital R. 
She mentions rose garlands found in ancient Egyptian tombs dating to AD 300, takes us to the aforementioned Kayam anecdote, and duns Linnaeus for his scant attention, quote-unquote, to the genus and the confusion that resulted from it for those who came after, even somehow knowing, like a spy, that there were roses in his herbarium that he neglected to mention. Rosa Machadi, Rosa Agrestis, Sepius, and Rosa Multiflora. She then reels off the attempts to gather the roses that have appeared between her and Linnaeus, concluding before she fully begins, without fanfare, that the Index Coensis gives specific rank to 493 roses, with additions in the first, second, and third supplements, amounting to about 50. Around 543 roses, then, or roses, as she would put it. David Parsons, in the revised edition of his Parsons on the Rose, published about the same time as Woolman Book in America, notes more than 2,000 varieties. At present, there are around 3,000, though there remain approximately 150 species commonly grown. Every book on roses I have ever read begins in some way like Wilmot's. For example, the Rosarum Monographia, a lovely and rare volume of roses, praised by Parsons as among the finest and published in 1820 by a young Dr. John Lindley, who dedicates it to one Charles Lyle Esquire. Although the number of publications on the present subject is already too considerable, and their authors, in many instances, men of established reputation, yet nothing is more notorious than the almost inextricable confusion in which roses are to this day involved. Lindley accuses some of the authors of the aforementioned confusing works of having used dead and dried flowers as specimens, and reveals his book to be inspired by the considerable private collection of living plants that has occupied him for years. His new book is meant as a corrective to those who haven't had the advantage he has, which is to say, the advantage of his own garden. This is because all Rosarians, I think, find their own garden to be not just a wonder, but a messenger from a place of secrets that other Rosarians cannot know. From Lindley we learn the rose was a bribe given to Harpocrates, the god of silence, that there is a custom in northern Europe of hanging a rose from the ceiling above a table, if what passed beneath it was meant to be secret. That the red of roses comes from the blood of Venus, whose feet were cut by roses as she attempted to protect Adonis from the rage of her husband, Mars. Or, per Theocritus, the red is the blood of Adonis himself. Or it is Cupid, who spilled a bowl of nectar while dancing, staining the rose red. Or, per Ausonius, it is Cupid's own blood. Or it is the sweat of Muhammad, according to the Turks. Perhaps all of it is true. The rose is love gift, stained by the gods, no matter the god or the giver, the first secret of them all. In any case, the lesson we can take, I think, is plant a rose, wait for a message, be it earthly or divine. Three. A good place to begin a garden is to undo whatever appear to be the clear mistakes of previous owners. I tear up the stone walk. It occupies patches of ground, feasting on sunlight, a feast of no use to a rock. The mother cat looks at me skeptically as she nurses her kittens, as if she has seen this happen before. I make a figure-eight path, irregular in the manner of handwriting, hollowing out the spaces for the stones before I water them into place and hop on them as they set, in a method I invent as I go. I wander out to the chain-link fence and back again. Shattered glass and ceramic shards cover the ground in my yard, and I consider using the larger pieces to make a mosaic of some kind, but discard that idea quickly. Most gardens are palimpsests of previous gardens, and the first spring usually has surprises. 
But it is already clear someone before me planted mint. A newbie mistake, my neighbor points out, as mint spreads rapidly, choking out everything else with long, fragrant rhizome ropes just under the surface of the dirt. The woman who lived here before me, according to the neighbor, had vegetables, some herbs, some flowers. My neighbor and I have conversations over our fence, each of us standing on benches. Mostly we talk about getting the yard cats adopted. The tomcat suitors of the mother cat pass through the missing teeth of the fence at a high run, and we discuss whether repairing the fence will slow them down. One tom seems to be the neighborhood king. He has a giant head and is so heavy that when he climbs down the fire escape and drops to my deck, he sounds like the full sack of a burglar. My neighbor is concerned about what pesticides and fertilizers I will use. I assure her I will not use chemicals without consulting her. She tells me she has planted dandelions, and I studiously do not laugh at her, instead quietly remembering summers spent pulling them out of my mother's yard. I have two more dreams about gardening during my first year living in this place and then never again to this day. In the first, I take a train ride, much like the one I took from London to Edinburgh, and meet at the station my grandfather Goodwin, my mother's father, a man who farmed every day of his long life in Maine. He takes me in his pickup quietly and shows me a beautiful forest of particolored leaves, each of them as big as the shield of a Templar. Behind the leaves are flowers as big as faces. It is the same garden I remember after waking that I dreamed of when I moved in, though in the way of dreams there is no resemblance, just an inner knowing. In the second dream I am walking through Brooklyn and flowers fill the streets like a river, Roses that climb several stories high. Foxglove and lupine like missiles. So many flowers that we Brooklynites must walk on catwalks set along the top stories of buildings built especially to accommodate those garden streets. Roses, I discover in my research, appear delicate but have adapted to most climates. They can be made to bloom all through the year until winter. The more they are cut back, the faster they grow and the stronger they are. My role models at last, I think, when I read this. I will have the dull garden with just one type of plant, I decide. But the variations on the theme seem enough. I begin with just ten roses. Shrubs and climbers, a few floribundas and everbloomers. All are chosen for being described with words like hardy and disease-resistant. As I wait for the order to arrive, I go into the yard and gather all the dead wood and giant dead stalks left from the sunflowers of the previous inhabitants. I bundle the wood branches with the idea I'll use them to stake the roses until I remember they're poisoned and take them out. The roses arrive, bare roots wrapped in a brown paper bag, looking like the sticks I just cleared from the yard, except, touching the bag, I can feel they are alive a fierce halo of living force against my fingertips. I understand immediately why people speak to plants as I draw a bath of cool water for them per the instructions that accompany. I set the roots in the tub and step back, feeling crowded out of the bathroom. People talk to plants because they're alive. I get into bed and can feel them still, in there, drinking the water. In the morning, I rush to put them in the ground. Before the planting, I walk around the garden with the tags of the various roses and set them in different spots as I try to decide on the final design. I use the pictures and the projected measurements 
to imagine a sort of ghost garden amid the straw-colored dead plants. I then dig three of the holes in quick succession. Of the fourth, my spade hits cloth, and I put it down. Briefly, I imagine the possibility that I am in a very different story from the one I believe myself to be in. A murder mystery, for example. This is perhaps the moment when I discover the murders that made the rent so cheap. I go back and dig until I pull from the ground what turns out to be a pale blue cotton house dress, flecked with a flowerbud print and stained from the pale mud tea soaking the wet ground. It is light, the size of a small pillow. I set it down gently, and with a spade's blade push the folds of the dress back. At the center is a small crucifix and rosary, wrapped around a pile of small, thin bones. Among them are sharp fang teeth, one still attached to a piece of jawbone, reassuring me this was once a cat or small dog. I place it all carefully into a trash bag, go to the corner bodega, and look for a saint's candle, settling on Our Lady of Guadalupe, the avatar of the Virgin Mary, always painted, surrounded by roses. I've always liked this story. A campesino, asked to prove he saw the Virgin Mary, returns to where he saw her, and she tells him to go to the top of a hill in winter to collect flowers he can take back as proof. He arrives to find a rose garden, blooming in winter. I light the candle, set it by the hole, and finish digging it. As I go through the rest of the garden, I find more bones. It is like a boneyard, oxtails thrown here after making soup. Some look to be birds, others the remains of a hundred feral cat feasts. A dead rat is under the deck. I use a spade to remove it. I uncover piles of magazines that seem to have been put in the ground as landfill and carry these to the curb. I let the candle burn for hours in the manner you're supposed to, and when I put it out, I consider the possibility I've disturbed some kind of spell. I've never heard of a cat being given a Catholic burial. I imagine a small girl or boy doing such a thing, a private religion, a child's insistence on the animal's soul, much like me, the non-believer who goes to the corner to buy a saint's candle, just in case. That night, I go out for a beer and meet up with a friend, a Brooklyn native and contractor. He tells me that in Brooklyn, as late as the 1950s, Italian and Irish Catholic families buried their dead in their yards if they were too poor to afford a gravesite. The houses often had a room used only for wakes, a dead room, which are now used as a small bedroom in apartments shared by roommates. You're lucky it was just a cat, my friend says, and he puts his beer down. It was just a cat, right? I think of the fangs staring up at me and nod. Four. The more I think about the word rosary, the more I understand it must be related to aviary, topiary, and so on. When I check the definition, I see the first meaning is for the prayer, and then in italics that it once meant rose garden in Middle English. How did a word for a rose garden come to mean a prayer? Bimbo, for example, used to refer to a man. The French word rien, which means nothing, now in ancient French, means something. But the story of this word is not a journey from one meaning to its opposite. Rosary was once a term for rose garden, until it was not. The cultivation of the rose in gardens as we know it now was firmly established in Europe by Empress Josephine of France in the 18th century and was further refined in the 19th century until we arrived at the tea rose type we all know today from all of those Valentine's bouquets. Rose tea is not derived from this rose, though, and predates it considerably. 
The rose's flower is the blossom of the rosehip fruit, a relative of the blackberry and the raspberry, and is likewise edible. There are recipes for cooking with roses using chicken or chocolate. Tea can be made from the fruit as well as from the petals, and rose tea is used in Indian Ayurvedic medicine to calm the drinker's constitution, but was never grown primarily for these uses. The meaning of rosary as we know it now comes to us from the 13th century. As the story goes, St. Dominic, greatly concerned for the future of the Roman Catholic Church in France, prayed at Notre Dame and Bruy for guidance. At the time, the Albigensian dissidents were teaching an interesting heresy, that the body belonged to the devil and the soul to God, so there was no need to worry about the body's sins as they belonged with it to the devil. The Albigensian heresy quickly spread in 13th century France was soon in moral turmoil. When Dominic prayed to the Virgin Mary, she appeared to him and instructed him on what was first called the angelic psalter, told him he was to use this weapon against the heresy. At the time, a rosary was only a rose garden, though in England, rosary was also the name of the equivalent of a penny. The turmoil of the Albigensian heresy was rivaled only by the demand from the thousands of believers returning to the church for the angelic psalter, a popular spiritual practice. And Dominic, who had been a studious young man given to ostentatious penances that made the older members of his order nervous, was now a hero and eventually made a saint. The young man who had once tried to sell all his books for money to feed the poor had invented, or say was given, by the Virgin Mary, a system of memorized and recited prayer useful to a young man who'd sold all his books to feed the poor. It was Thomas of Cantimpre, a Dominican scholar in Flanders and a contemporary of Dominic's, best known for his multi-volume work Opus de Natura Rerum, who, in a book he wrote on the lives of bees, was moved to consider the angelic psalter within it, and described it as being like a circlet of roses to be offered up to the Virgin Mary. Shortly after the publication of Thomas's book on bees, rosary earned and kept its current meaning. So the story of the word rosary, coming to mean prayer, is, in the end, a story of the power of metaphor. Mary and Roses have been linked since her death. On the third day after her burial, mourners who went to her tomb were said to have found her body gone and her shroud full of roses. The scent of a rose where none should be is now formally one of the signs of Mary's presence. In one of her 20th century appearances, for example, the visitant's mother said she believed her daughter's vision of Mary was manifest because of the scent of roses in the surrounding air. One result of this connection is that contemporary rose culture was for some time dominated by Catholics who tried to keep the number of varieties limited to 150, the number of beads on a rosary, and the number of psalms in the prayer. I like the story of Mary's tomb and think of it sometimes in graveyards. I'm not a Catholic, but I like to imagine a God moved to grief by her death, taking her from the tomb and filling her shroud with roses as he left. In any case, the dead are often honored with roses, either left at their graves or planted there, and the result is that cemeteries are often home to some of the best of the heirloom varieties. It's an old rose gardener's trick, one I haven't tried yet, of taking cuttings from these graveyard roses, but I still can't allow myself to leave a cemetery with anything I didn't bring in. 5. During the first winter at night, I sometimes feel as I imagine they do, as if the part of me that is exposed is plain, stripped of all ornament, and the part that isn't seen is growing, spreading, roots cast like a net through an ocean of silt. I know now this is also what it feels like to write a novel, which is exactly what I was doing. Your grandmother grew roses, my mother tells me. Do you remember that? I don't. I recall walking with her through her cannon garden in Maine, 
her pulling a potato out of the ground for me to eat. She would rub off the dirt on her apron and bite hers like an apple as we entered the house. If I flinched at the dirt on the potato, she'd say, you'll eat a peck of dirt before you die. We spoke very little, she and I, but we loved each other. My grandfather showing me the garden in my dreams now seems more like someone welcoming me to a place I could have found only by searching, as in that test of virtue in every legend. The rose I planted in the spot where I dug up the cat bones gives me no flowers for the first two years. In the catalog, it was listed only as Special Climber, and so I wonder if it is a mutant dud sold on the cheap, but I do not pull it up. I rename it, jokingly, the Voodoo Rose, after its first mute year. For two years, it only grows stocky and huge until it seems almost demonic, whipping the wind with seven and eight-foot canes. The absence of blossoms feels like a sulk at the garden's corner. In the third year, when it finally buds, I feel forgiven. Thick clouds of teacup-sized pink blossoms appear. My neighbor stares. They're so beautiful, she says. What did you do? I shrug. I do not feel at all responsible. The voodoo rose soon becomes the garden's bully beauty, alluring and cruel, often looking as if it is reaching for the climbing blaze I planted at the garden center, or whipping at the Therese Bougenet next to it. Its thorns are especially long, and sometimes I find clots of cat fur on it. Occasionally, working in the garden, it smacks my head lightly, like it is mocking me, and sometimes draws blood. The relatively mature garden, then, at age three years. When I stand on the deck, the voodoo rose is on my near left, and on my right, two rosa rugosas, the sea roses I grew up with in Maine, their canes furred with thorns. A Therese Bougenet is in the rear, at the middle... The fairy is on the left and the climbing blaze at the center. Behind that climbing blaze is the Joseph's coat, and behind that, another tree's bougenet. A golden shower climbs the far back left. Together they are a slow concert. Each year, the twin tree's bougenets planted at the back and front of the yard push up first. Though they are also delicate, the blossoms softer than eyelids and poor for cuttings. They belong in the garden, that is to say. These dress themselves before the rest, like haughty sisters, head to toe in crisp green, and when the blossoms come, pretty girl pink, flashing at the top of the new dark maroon canes. The far one at the center of the back wall grows tallest first, and every year offers a single pink blossom at the top, like the opening note of a song. From there, the other blossoms open and spread down, like the slowest possible flamenco dance, extending over several weeks. Her sister follows suit a few days after that, first blossom. Then the Joseph's coat lights up from behind the far terrace, with golden blossoms tinged by red stains, as if someone has touched them all with a brush. These blooms change color as they open. In the center of the climbing blaze is a little fire pit of red blooms, and if I prune regularly, I have roses until December. In the winter, it often has frozen buds, as if surprised every year that there is a winter. The golden showers never does very well, more like a well-meaning trickle, though the blooms are nice when they arrive, a perfect bright yellow. I think it needs a longer, hotter season. Years later, I will see the variety in Texas during the spring, massive yellow clouds everywhere I look. The fairy rose, the one I thought would be so delicate, blooms through the summer and into the fall and winter, keeping the blaze company, blindly tossing out a froth of pink blossoms and shrugging off any mildew or fungus, heavy rain or cat landings. The two Rosa Rugosas seem to have perpetual indigestion on the rich diet I feed them in my yard. 
perhaps more accustomed to the briny stones of any beach in Maine. They have long, woody, spiny stems, with a kind of hat of blossoms at the top. They always seem to want to leave. They are on my mind when I head to Maine by car at the beginning of my first summer. I go back for a week with my brother and sister and her husband, and they laugh when I poke the window, asking to stop at plant nurseries. We are going to celebrate our cousin's wedding and visit my aunt, a lifelong gardener who has become a florist and landscaper in Rangeley, near the border of Canada. My aunt's yard is full of plantings, many virgus roses among them. I explain to her what I'm doing in my garden and ask for her help. She offers me a ten-pound bag of manure to take back with me. Roses love manure more than just about anything, she says. My siblings refuse to allow it in the car. I'll mail it, she says to me, and laughs, and then sends me home instead with something called seaweed tea, a noxious brew of seaweed, and what I grew up calling gurry down on the Portland waterfront, the remains of gutted fish. It has a smell, too, she says, but not until you put it on the pail. This might be the one thing roses love more than manure. We stop at the beach on our way back to New York, near our mother's new place in Biddeford. I stroll the boardwalk of Kennebunkport, the beach lined with sea rose hedges. These are the sea roses of my childhood, the ancient variety that seems to me the hardiest of them all. I follow a line of greenery out along a spit of sand and rock to a sandbar, where I come across a sea rose perched on, or really around, a granite boulder. The roots wrap the boulder like the ribbon on a present and probe for chinks. Erosion has taken away the ground around it, and the rock has tumbled onto the beach, so the rose is growing at an angle, reaching for the sun, new buds flourishing. They lift along the side of the rock and over it, as big as a single bed. The ocean and the rose compete in a slow race to break the boulder apart, though it looks as if the rose flew down to grab the boulder and, having caught it, won't fly off and won't let go. You might think a rose was something delicate, but you'd be looking in the wrong place. When I return from Maine home again, I open the door to my apartment, afraid my roses will be withered, fainting, dead. No rain for four days. I rush to the back, where I find them giddy, hurling color up from the ground like children with streamers at a parade. I try the seaweed tea my aunt gave me. It has the rank, terrible smell of a fish left out in the sun, not quite long enough to dry, but for months. Not even the feral cats come to the yard while the scent is in the air. I touch everything I hear about a rose. I plant garlic and onions at the feet of two bushes to try and make the roses too bitter for aphids. And when the hot summer arrives, they smell hotly of garlic and onions, and the aphids continue eating them all the same. I use soda water for some of the feedings to aid the greening, and it seems to work. I take a pitchfork and stab at the earth to aerate the roots. Every so often I pee into a pint glass and take it outside to shake it along the garden's perimeter to keep the worst of the cats at bay. Or at night, alone, or seemingly alone, I leave it there by myself. The cats do seem to come less, as if this is a fence they understand. I pull weeds from the ground that grow a yard in a single week. How did I not hear them pushing their way up? Afterward, the earth looks stark and bare. When I am done cleaning up, I walk around the corner and come to a full stop in front of a white tea rose in front of a flower shop. It is called a great century and seems exactly right for the bare spot in my yard. I had decided against tea roses, thinking them hard to grow. Tea roses are the reason the rose has a reputation among non-gardeners as being too difficult to raise. But the bloom there on the bush is a pretty one, and the florist selling it has no idea what it is worth, so the price is very low. 
The rose is too large for the pot it sits in, and so this, in the end, this elegant creature's pinched feet, is the reason it comes home with me. Come, I tell it as I carry it. Soon you'll have a place where you can stretch your feet. At home I pull and cut at the bald gnarl of its roots. When in late summer it offers me roses, despite being planted so late, it feels like a cat laying a catch by its owner's door. Six. My neighbor peers over my yard to check my progress. Gorgeous, she says. I wonder if she really means it. Her yard is impeccably neat, whereas the kindest thing you can say of mine is that it is an untidy cottage garden. A mix of what I meant to plant and what was left behind by others. But she is really amazed, like a child at the fair. Sunflowers have come up, also apparently hard to grow, uninvited guests from the previous tenants, along with the miraculously large flocks and peppermint flowers, pearly tines at the end of the hardy, fragrant spirals of green that I have to pull from the ground every week. At the back of the garden in midsummer, I smell what I think is cinnamon or clove and find lavender roasting in the late July sun. There's marjoram hanging down, funny round flowers, a sort of ochre that crumble to my touch, and summer savory and hyssop, the savory blue, the hyssop blue-white. The hyssop is strangely vigorous and the rosemary planted near it shies away as if afraid. I planted a wildflower mix compulsively, scattering the seeds haphazardly, and snapdragons, cosmos, and poppies grow from that, red, white, and pink. From where I stand on the deck in the morning, I admire the blossoms whirl. It is not yet as high as I'd like. I want to feel surrounded by them, to feel that someone left me a hundred bouquets in my yard while I slept. Still, I'm gratified by the second round of blooms appearing, the summer blossoms after I deadheaded the spring ones, cutting off the fading blossoms, makes the rose grow more of them. I notice the Joseph's coat roses at the back of the garden and decide it's time to see those new blossoms up close. As I get near, the largest bloom quivers and the shiny backs of nine Japanese beetles emerge, combing the petals with their horn mandibles, oil black and oil green, chopping hard. I run to the house and return with my pyrethrin spray, foaming the rose until the beetles slide to the ground. Pyrethrin is my favorite bug killer, non-toxic to humans. It is a paralytic agent. The bug cannot move and dies as its metabolism burns its very spare stores of energy, starving it to death. I never had the urge to kill a thing, it occurs to me, as I sweep the beetles up from the ground, until I started growing roses. After the attack of the Japanese beetles, I am protective of the garden in a whole new way. I take out my copy of A Year of Roses by Stephen Scaniello and read about all the terrible things there are that seem to live just to eat a rose. Aphids, sure, and Japanese beetles, but also rose mites, and worse, the cane borer. The cane borer drills down into the cane to plant its larvae, hollowing it as they emulsify the cane center and killing the rose as they go. The borer leaves a tiny hollow tunnel behind as if someone had taken the lead out of a pencil. I put the book down and with a growing sense of alarm rush to the garden and begin inspecting it for borers. I check the far Therese Bougenet first. The hole is there. I go to the hardware store and buy lop-handled shears and then, at the pharmacy, nail polish, per Scaniello's instructions. I am to cut the stems back until the cane is smooth again and cauterize the wound with the lacquer. I buy a pale frosted green color so it blends in with the foliage. Much of what I must cut off are the second round blooms this rose has given me, and what is left looks like the bush was prepared for surgery. I walk inside to let the canes dry a little, and then come out again painting each cut stem. 
At the beginning of the second spring, as I prepare to leave for a month at a writer's colony in Virginia during the month of March, when I would do much of the gardening preparation for the season, I go to wake the roses from their winter sleep by pruning them. I have the proportions wrong in my head, however, and I cut them back by two-thirds instead of one-third. When I finish, I am startled at the sight of all the sticks, a picture of pain, the cut stems wet with fresh sap. After I take the trimmings to the curb, I lie down on my bed, horrified. The trip to Sweetbriar, Virginia is a long but simple one. I arrive to a town with fields full of giant wild roses that climb up trees, spill down the other side, filling the grounds of the colony, where I find rose bushes the size of cottages, bristling with thorns and buds. Sweetbriar, I learn, is named such for the roses planted by cattle ranchers who tried to save on cow fencing. It didn't work. The cows ignored the roses. But the town is surely the proof of what my aunt said about how much roses love cow manure. I am here to work on my first novel, and I do well. I spend five weeks among these enormous roses and write 120 pages. On the morning of my departure, I discover a black snakeskin, shed whole and without a single tear. Its former owner had spent the previous week sunning itself on the fence near my studio and left its coat across the walkway to my door. I imagine the snake using the thorns to shed its skin, but I see no holes on it anywhere when I hold it up to the light. Instead, it glows in the sun, the scales light up, and the blue sky shows through the holes for its mouth and eyes. I climb into the car of the man giving me a ride back to New York and show it to him. He laughs and tells me he has been writing about the traditions of the area's indigenous people, that according to them, this would be a powerful omen of good luck. The snake, he tells me, leaves the skin with you as a sign of its respect and good wishes. I am odd, but I can't imagine living with it, so I give it to him to give to his son as payment for my ride. When I return to my garden, the roses I feared would be dead or dying are instead huge, the canes thick and new, the leaves a sturdy dark, and the buds firm to the touch. I can feel them surging under the surface, that cutting them back by two-thirds would seem to have made them more powerful than ever. Perhaps this was the gift of the snake, the lesson for me at least, and this I think of as the gift of the garden, Learned every year I lived in that apartment. You can lose more than you thought possible and still grow back stronger than anyone imagined. I stay five years more past that spring. In those years, I take roses with me to dinner parties, usually the voodoo roses, as the plant seems able to provide the vast amounts of roses needed to make such gifts. A flower shop opens next door, and when I go by with some, the owner is shocked and asks me where I got them. Soon I am providing her with a bucket of them to sell. I throw my own parties and the garden fills with people drinking around the roses. I have affairs, boyfriends. One summer I learn about garden feng shui and map my body under the garden. Shortly after, an outbreak of cane borer seems to predict exactly a case of crabs. The feng shui map, like a fetish doll drawn under the garden, one that had mapped its problems onto me, or vice versa. I eventually take pity on the sea roses and remove them, in an unscientific gesture that I also feel very sure of, I take them to the beach in Maine and leave them out on the rocks to fend for themselves. After I finish and publish my first novel, I become restless. And when I talk about moving, I mention taking the roses with me because people say, what about your garden? They arrive by truck, I tell those people. They can leave that way as well. In the end, though, when I do move, I leave the garden there with the rest of its mysterious contents, deciding they belong to the place and not to me. I had come to this garden much like what I found in it. I was a mess, a disaster in need of a reckoning. That backyard was my perfect mirror, and the dream of the garden was in its own way a dream of myself. 
I arrived there after many years of self-abandonment, sure only that I did not know myself, but certain that I needed to believe I had a future. I did not know what the garden could do. I did not know what I could do. If my garden was a messenger, the message was in the silent moments when I was sure I could hear it growing toward me through the earth, that more was coming, but I did not know this then. I knew only that it was time for me to leave. I had done what I came to do. Whenever I am back in the neighborhood, I sometimes pass my apartment from the street. I like to believe, stupidly, that if I were to open the front door again, in the back, I would find my roses, huge from their seaweed tea, and the many days of six hours sunlight, perhaps growing legs, ready to push down the building and walk out to the street, striking cars out of their way and slicing the blacktop to ribbons. I want to think that they would miss me, their erstwhile tormentor, the one who pushed them so hard to grow cutting and soaking them in the blazing sun from spring to winter. From the street, from across the river, where I now live without them, I can feel them still, sometimes, the sap pulsing in their veins, pushing their way to the sky. But the creature that grew legs and walked away from the garden was me. I was not their gardener. They were mine. That's it for this series of Everything Else. Alexander Chi's book, How to Write an Autobiographical Novel, is out now. We'll be back in the new year with a new series. Meanwhile, you can catch up on all our previous episodes, which include interviews with novelist Sally Rooney, comedian Phil Wang, punk poet John Cooper Clark, and painter Kerry James Marshall. And you can get in touch. We'd love to hear from you. You can contact us at our Facebook page, facebook.com slash everythingelsepodcast, or email us at everythingelseft.com. And if you've enjoyed the series, you can help other people discover it by leaving us a rating or review on Apple Podcasts. Everything Else was edited this week by Penny Bell. We've been Alan Grizz. And our music is composed by Fatima.